I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, we're examining the constitutionality of the Special Counsel Independence and Integrity Act, a proposed bill that would regulate the president's ability to fire the special counsel. Uh, last week, Senator Mike Lee of Utah objected on the Senate floor to a vote on the bill, stalling it for now. Senator Chris Coons, who's proposed the bill, came to the Constitution Center on the night of Senator Lee's objection and challenged Senator Lee to a constitutional debate on the floor of the Senate, which uh, Senator Lee accepted. We're so excited, we the people listeners, Senator Coons and Lee chair our Madisonian Constitution for All Commission. We're excited to be sponsoring that debate. We're going to be running the feed with Senator Coons as a bonus episode. And today we have America's leading experts on this constitutional question to help all of us unpack and disaggregate and make up our own minds about this central question about whether or not the special counsel removal bill is or is not constitutional. So I'm so honored to introduce Joshua Geltzer, who is founding executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University Law Center. Josh, welcome, and thank you so much for joining. Thank you for the invitation. And Eric Posner is Kirkland and Ellis Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. And Eric, it is wonderful to have you back. Nice to be back. Thank you. Let us begin with the text of the Constitution, Article 2, Section 2 says that the president shall have the power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to appoint all officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which will be established by law, but the Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone in the courts of law or in the heads of departments. Eric, unpack for us the significance of that language. What is the constitutional distinction between a principal and an inferior officer of the United States? And do you believe that the special counsel is a principal or an inferior officer? Uh, sure. So this, uh, you know, very brief clause of the Constitution is quite important because it gives the president and his subordinates the power to fill up the vast federal bureaucracy with appointees. And um, there are these principal officers who are basically the top people who have a lot of uh, discretionary authority, like the attorney general, for example. And the president appoints uh, these um, principal officers with the advice and consent of the Senate. So the president nominates the person and then the Senate uh, votes on him or her. Um, and then this clause that you read, but the Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers um, as they think proper and the president alone and so so forth. That just says that the Congress can make um, all kinds of um, offices that are inferior, meaning these are subordinates, people who are controlled by the the uh, superior officers, the principal officers, and Congress can decide how exactly uh, those um, offices should be filled. Um, and that's uh, and the, and of course the importance here is that if the special counsel is a principal officer, 
um, he should be appointed with the advice and consent of the Senate. And the law has come down to us that the president could remove him for any reason as well. On the other hand, if he's an inferior officer, then um, the general view, although Josh might disagree with this, is that Congress can put constraints on uh, removal of that person. So uh, the key issue um, in the special counsel bill is that that bill says that the special counsel can be removed only for good cause. And um, my view is that because the special counsel is, a, is an inferior officer, since he's controlled by the attorney general, Congress is allowed to uh, put that limit on his removal. Thank you for that very lucid introduction. So as you've helped us understand, um, if uh, the officer is a principal officer, uh, the understanding is that the president uh, can fire him, but if he's an inferior officer, the general understanding is that there can be limits placed on the ability to fire, although you said there's some disagreement about that. So Josh, I'd like your thoughts on this question of how to define a principal versus an inferior officer and whether or not you think that the special counsel is a principal and inferior officer, and then we can turn to the question of limitations on firing. Thanks very much, Jeff, and I think Eric has, has teed it up just perfectly. Uh, he's, he's laid it out clearly, and he's honed in on uh, the one part where, where we may see it somewhat differently, but uh, I'm with him. Uh, the special counsel is an inferior officer, uh, and in general for listeners, when they think of principal officers, they should think of cabinet members, roughly, people who answer directly to the president. Uh, and then when they think of inferior officers, they should think a bit below that, people who have a boss that sits between them uh, and the president in the reporting chain. And just to fill out the picture of the executive branch, listeners may want to also have in mind one more category below, so to speak, inferior officers. This category tends to get called employees by the courts as they work through this. So you have the president atop the executive branch, principal officers just below the president, inferior officers below that, and then this category of, of employees. And uh, to, to, to point in the direction I think we're headed, I think Eric and I probably agree that the principal officers can be removed by the president essentially as the president sees fit. And the employees can have what we now think of as civil servant protections generally. And the debate, the debate as it applies to this bill that's been proposed, is over those inferior officers and to the extent to which the president can be limited in his ability to remove those folks. Thanks so much for that great tee up as well, Joshua. Okay, so now let's hone in on what the Supreme Court has said about the distinction between principal and inferior officers. On the Senate floor, Senator Mike Lee invoked Justice Antonin Scalia's dissenting opinion in the Morrison and Olson case. It was a seven to one case. Justice Scalia alone objected that the independent counsel statute was unconstitutional as a violation of the appointments clause and separation of powers. Uh, the majority of the court disagreed. Uh, and uh, Senator Lee predicted that the current court would agree with Justice Scalia and not the Rehnquist court. And then we have a case called Edmund uh, from 1997, where Justice Scalia said that there were two essential criteria for inferior officer status, whether the officer's work is directed and supervised at some level by others who are appointed by presidential nomination with the advice and consent of the Senate, 
and whether the officer has no power to render a final decision on behalf of the United States unless permitted to do so by other executive officials. Eric, if you would, please tell us the essence of the majority reasoning in Morrison and Olson of Justice Scalia's dissenting opinion in Morrison and Olson and Justice Scalia's gloss in the Edmund case. Well, the uh, the majority, so let's back up a little bit. The independent counsel statute um, created this officer known as an independent counsel. Um, at that time, that officer um, was given by Congress many more powers than what the special counsel has now. Um, of course, that's a, a key point that we'll probably come back to. The independent counsel was very roughly appointed by judges and it had a, a, a great deal of independence. Um, the uh, independent counsel was uh, was challenged in the 1980s, as you said, and the uh, majority opinion is a fairly uh, kind of pragmatic um, uh, opinion. They just say, look, you know, this independent counsel uh, can serve important purposes. The statute, by the way, came after uh, Watergate. Um, the, uh, we need an independent, we may well need an independent counsel to prevent presidents and high level officials from engaging in wrongdoing or punishing them if they do so. Um, Scalia's dissent, which is very famous and at least parts of it are quite, um, striking and well-written. Basically what Scalia said was that, um, the president is the head of the executive branch, um, uh, the executive branch uh, includes, or supposedly includes, all the people who engage in, quote, executive types of action. And he argues that prosecution is a typically executive type of action. And so, therefore, the president has to have control over any type of prosecution. But the independent counsel is at least partly outside the control of the president. The attorney general did have some control over the independent counsel, but it was limited. And so, therefore, uh, the independent counsel uh, was unconstitutional. Um, so that view was rejected, as you said, by by seven other justices. One justice wasn't wasn't sitting. Um, and generally speaking, we think of a, of a one-person dissent as not controlling law. Um, Morrison versus Olson was never overturned by the Supreme Court, but there was this later case you mentioned, Edmund in which this time Justice Scalia was allowed uh, to write the majority because the court agreed with him. But all that Edmund really did was, I don't know, add a little bit of flesh or color to the standard in uh, Morrison versus Olson. And it, it's the Morrison versus Olson had a kind of a confusing discussion of how we distinguish between an inferior and principal officer. Justice Scalia and Edmund uh, maybe simplifies, simplifies the standard a little bit by referring to these two elements that you mentioned, whether the work is directed and supervised by others at a higher level, and whether uh, the officer has power to render a final decision. So, Joshua, how much turns on Morrison v. Olson, which Senators Coons and Lee are going to be debating on the floor of the Senate? Given the gloss in the Edmund case, does the Supreme Court need formally to overturn uh, Morrison and Olson to clarify the distinction between principal and inferior officers? And why don't you tell the listeners how you, who you think has the better argument and how the distinction should be defined? Sure. I, I think one's view of Morrison, both its merits and its current status, probably tells you a lot about 
one's view on the, the, the bill that's, that's being debated, although it may ultimately not be determinative of it. And I should be clear, uh, the Supreme Court has warned lower courts repeatedly that until and unless the Supreme Court says a given case has been overruled by it, that case remains to some degree, with some scope, good law, so to speak. So this means that if I were a district judge and something identical to the independent counsel statute were passed tomorrow uh, by Congress and signed by the president and came before me, I think my job as a district judge would be to cite Morrison and to uphold that law. But I think that's about as much as Morrison is still good for at this point. It seems to me that when you take the, the great dissenter uh, in, in, uh, in Morrison, Justice Scalia, and do what the court did, which is let him vindicate his view by writing the majority in the admin case, uh, a case about Coast Guard judges, but that was addressing this question of principle, inferior, how to distinguish between them, and also what it means to be inferior, what sort of control must be had over an inferior officer, if that word inferior is to mean anything, I think you have a court essentially limiting Morrison to its facts, so to speak. And so here's what I think Justice Scalia got right in, in the Morrison dissent and was allowed to then um, largely vindicate himself in, in his uh, majority opinion in Edmund. It's that when there's something at least core to executive authority and executive function and prosecuting, uh, wielding the power of, of criminal punishment strikes me, I think many of us, as pretty core to that. You see the flip side to it and the president's pardon power. When that's at stake, the executive, ultimately the chief executive, the president needs tight control over that. That's in part why we all think the president can fire those who are principal officers, because you need to get rid of a cabinet member who's not doing what the person elected by the voters, the president wants that cabinet officer to do. One step below that, somebody wielding significant authority uh, as an officer, but inferior because they report to a principal officer, that person, it seems to me, also needs to be responsive to the president and thus to the will of the people, the electorate to put the president in there. And that at its core is the logic of, of Scalia's opinion. Uh, Justice Kagan, before she was on the court, said that uh, Justice Scalia's Morrison dissent was right at the time and keeps lo looking righter every year or something along those lines. And I happen to think she's she's right about that. Thank you so much for that. So now you very helpfully teed up the central question of disagreement between the two of you, which is whether or not inferior officers can be removed for good cause. Uh, Eric, you've argued that inferior officers can be removed for good cause. So tell us what the current Supreme Court has said about that. Obviously, in, in Morrison, it suggested that uh, that limitation was okay. And whether even if Morrison were overturned, why you believe that a good cause restriction on the firing of inferior officers would be consistent with the Constitution. Yeah. Um, so let me back up a bit, and then I'll answer your question. Uh, one, one issue, as Josh mentions, is whether prosecution is, an, is a core executive function. And I think intuitively we might say yes. But just to be clear, um, Justice Scalia claimed a historical basis for his view that the president alone um, controls executive power and everybody who engages in prosecution is, is a, is engages in an executive function that the president must control. That's actually not true historically. Um, prosecution of federal laws 
uh, in the founding era was undertaken by federal employees who have independence and also even by um, state officials and um, unbelievably from the modern perspective, uh, private individuals. But at the time, uh, it was lawful for private individuals to bring criminal cases on behalf of the US government. So this notion of executive, what the executive power is, is actually very complicated historically. And that's why the, the real argument here is one of policy. You could call it a constitutional policy argument and, and that, Josh, uh, that Josh made. And that argument is that because people elect the president, um, the uh, and, and the president, you know, operates through this bureaucracy. The president has to have the power to be able to remove people in the bureaucracy. Um, otherwise, if the bureaucracy does things that the public doesn't like, there's, you know, the, there's an argument that um, the public's democratic um, power is, is is limited. It can't punish a president. Uh, because um, uh, as a result of bad actions by the bureaucracy, because the president can't control the bureaucracy. But there's a flip side to this, which of course we see today, and that is that if the president himself is engaging in bad behavior, he could undermine democracy. And so the question comes down to really a very difficult, more or less empirical question about whether giving some independence to the bureaucracy actually improves democracy by limiting the president's ability to undermine democracy, that's my view, or whether it um, undermines democracy because then the president can't control the bureaucracy. That's a really tough question, can't be answered by reference to the Constitution because the Constitution uh, doesn't really answer it in any uh, explicit way, but instead creates a framework that the rest of us then use to try to figure out um, uh, how exactly these offices should be structured. And then to get to your question, Jeff, the, um, the, the question of whether, the, um, in, whether an inferior officer um, can be subject to a good cause removal um, constraint, um, that is, I guess, as a constitutional matter, that's really a kind of a separation of powers question, or you could call it, uh, yeah, it's really a separation of powers question. And the, the concern is that if he can, then again, the president, the president's power will be limited by other branches of the government in a way that we might not like. But, um, but of course, this just comes back to the policy argument I was making before. If you're worried that the president might engage in bad behavior in ways that are contrary to democratic norms or constitutional norms, then you may well need um, an independent officer of some sort to uh, to uh, to prevent him from doing so. And that's all that uh, this bill does. Joshua, please spell out, if you could, your argument about why you think that inferior officers cannot be removed for good cause. You have written that essential to keeping government responsive to the will of the people is maintenance of the president's authority over the executive branch and the president's corresponding ability to fire officers who work for him. If the opposite were the case, you you write, and this is your piece in the Washington Post, Mueller's inquiry is critical to our democracy, so is Trump's right to fire him. You say that uh, an assistant attorney general or undersecretary of defense acting unilaterally and contrary to the president's direction could be shielded from dismissal because there's no way short of litigation to tell whether he's removed for good cause. So spell out exactly 
in what part of the Constitution you root this uh, prohibition on the good cause limitation of the firing of inferior officers and, and, and why you think that the special counsel bill violates that limitation? Sure. And let me start by agreeing first and foremost with Eric on just how tough this this stuff is. It's, it's complicated and it's on so many issues. The Constitution's text, uh, as important as it is, uh, doesn't take us all the way to the answers that are, are critical to figuring these these things out. So th these are hard questions. It's great, great to grapple uh, with, with, with both of you uh, on them. Uh, and I also should, should say at the outset that this is about constitutional structure and constitutional policy. It's not about uh, it, the special counsel, Robert Mueller and his work, which as the title you, you generously read indicates, I think is absolutely critical. I think it's so important. And uh, I hope that he's allowed to continue his work and have, have, have participated in projects to try to ensure that. But it's in those times that the, the question of where do we really see the constitutional limitations gets teed up in some ways most um, vividly. And that's, that's that what brings us back to the, the good cause limitation. So let me try to give listeners a sense of who is in this category of inferior officers um, for which we're asking the question uh, of whether removal only for good cause uh, is permissible. The Supreme Court has said in, in pretty uh, broad terms, if somewhat vague terms, that an officer is, and I'm quoting here, any appointee exercising significant authority pursuant to the laws of the United States. So that, that doesn't give us a lot. It's language that the court reaffirmed earlier this year in a, in a, in a decision on administrative law judges in one agency. Um, but it seems to suggest that if you have a, quite a bit of sway, for lack of a better phrase, you're, you're probably an inferior officer. And the reason I emphasize that is there are still a lot of people who work in the government who who might be called everyday civil servants. And for them, without that sort of sway, good cause removal and pr protections uh, associated with it strike me as, as fair game. But it's the officers that we're focused on. And of course, it's the inferior officers here. I guess part of my, my, my argument is, is logical. If those who are the principal officers exercising even more authority need to be responsive to the president, it would seem to me that those one step down should be responsive to. And we can go actually all the way back to George Washington, who uh, issued directions to some of his line prosecutors in the field about uh, how to proceed in particular prosecutions. It suggests that George Washington thought they all worked for him. Uh, with, uh, and that's a position I, I happen to, to agree with. Sure, he may have had people who day-to-day -day directed their work, but those people, the, the, the attorney general, let's say, didn't block him from those one step below, the inferior officers. They were a conduit to those folks. And sometimes he could just issue the, the orders directly. That seems to me to suggest historically, but maybe even more important logically, that being one step away from the president doesn't protect you from the will of the president. If at anything, it may mean that you have a greater obligation to be responsive to the will of the president because you're two steps down the ladder from him, so to speak, not just one. I also think there's kind of a democratic Im imperative there, that ultimately in the executive branch, um, we vote for the president and the vice president, of course, and then the rest uh, get put in place by various means, political appointees, civil servants, but ultimately they're not voted on by, by, by the people. And we generally want those voted on by the people to have a lot of sway and to be able to keep those not voted on by the people responsive to that democratic Im imperative. 
Now, there are times we like that more and there are times we like that less. And I'll show my cards by saying right now the, uh, with the president we have in the White House, it's one of those times I personally like it less. But as a matter of constitutional design, uh, I do think it's, it's critical. And ultimately, the Constitution does tell us what we do about a president who's overstepped bounds. It includes impeachment as a remedy, a difficult remedy to be sure, but it's there. And the idea of, of restricting the president from being able to control his own executive branch, that doesn't strike me as consistent with how the Constitution sets this all up. So, Eric, Joshua is articulating and reinforcing arguments uh, that uh, Akhil Amar, a friend of We the People and of, of all of ours, uh, made in his Senate testimony as well. And Akhil agrees with Joshua's point that essentially if the president can personally sack any cabinet head at will, why should a mere inferior officer be somehow more insulated from direct presidential removal? Um, Akhil, like Joshua, note George Washington's insistence uh, that the president had the constitutional right to fire the attorney general, which the first Congress recognized by statute in the decision of 1789. So says uh, Akhil and Eric, if Congress can't relocate these decisions from the president to the AG and, and force the president to order the AG to sack the underling as opposed to doing it himself. So what is your response to all of those claims? And if you like, uh, you can uh, introduce more Supreme Court case law, including the Myers and Humphreys executors uh, case. Okay. Um, so I can't help saying this in response to uh, Josh. Everybody, well, the three of us anyway, many listeners know the famous Oliver Wendell Holmes quotation, the life of the law has not been logic, it has been experience. And uh, Josh says his argument is logical. The president has, if the president can remove for any reason a principal officer, because the principal officer has sway or influence, then he should be able to do the same with the inferior officer. Um, now that's the logic, but what's the experience? The experience is Watergate, right? So Watergate was one of the great constitutional crises of our history. Watergate, President Nixon used his power over law enforcement to undermine democratic norms, to spy on his opponents, to engage in dirty tricks, and uh, this caused an enormous crisis. Now, Nixon was forced to appoint a special prosecutor named Archibald Cox. And Archibald Cox started investigating and ultimately uh, realized that the president had engaged in some very seriously bad behavior and sought the famous tapes from the White House, whereupon Nixon fired him, as he could under the law at the time, although actually a court later held that firing was illegal, but let's, let's put that aside, okay? So um, Nixon actually couldn't fire Cox himself. He, he had to basically force uh, uh, Justice Department officials to do it. A couple resigned before um, Solicitor General Robert Bork uh, lowered the axe on Ox's neck. Okay. Um, now, ultimately, things worked out. Cox was replaced by someone else. Congress put a lot of pressure on the president, so did the press. Special prosecutor, the new special prosecutor was able to continue his investigation. But the lesson learned uh, from that incident was that because uh, uh, the founders gave the president so much power over law enforcement, or again, whether they did or not, that, that's how our system evolved. 
the president had the ability to manipulate and misuse that power in order to keep himself in power, undermine his opponents, and damage democratic norms. So Congress responded with the independent counsel statute. Right, so the, the, the special counsel at the time, actually the special prosecutor, as it was called, was just a creature of Justice Department regulations. That's why he was vulnerable. Congress wanted to create a statute that would give the, what was now called the independent counsel more uh, independence so that this type of misbehavior could be uh, prevented. Okay, so all of this seems eminently sensible. Uh, and I hate to think that the kind of vague language of the Constitution that can be interpreted in a million ways would have been used by the Supreme Court to prevent Congress from engaging in this very sensible, logical response to the, to the, uh, the crisis of Watergate. Uh, Justice Scalia's dissent is probably most famous not because of its constitutional analysis, which is extremely weak for reasons I uh, suggested earlier, but because he, he made a policy argument similar to the one that Josh is now making, and that is that the the uh, independent counsel could go berserk, right? Could just you know go on fishing expeditions, waste a lot of money, do crazy things, because the president can't remove him. And uh, and that turned out to be pressure. Uh, a lot of people thought that Ken Starr's investigation of Clinton in the late 1990s was such a fishing expedition that was out of control. And that's why Congress allowed the independent counsel statute to, to lapse. They couldn't agree on ways of improving it in order to prevent that from happening again. But, but the point I want to make is this is a policy question. There have been a lot of successful investigations by the independent counsel. There have been dozens over the years, and there have been a couple disasters. And we have to make trade-offs. We have to decide you know, how many disasters we're willing to, uh, to tolerate so that we have an official who can actually constrain the president from engaging in abusive behavior. That seems to me a trade-off that Congress could make or the executive branch could help make to make. It shouldn't be a trade-off that the courts should simply prohibit on the basis of these you know, vague constitutional principles. So Joshua, Eric has issued fighting words, at least for our uh, originalist uh, listeners, which is to claim that uh, your position, uh, like that of opponents of the Special Counsel Removal Act, is basically a policy argument that it would be uh, better not to have out of control uh, prosecutors who are accountable, but that there's not a strong constitutional grounds for it. So maybe begin by by answering, channeling Justice Scalia and trying to persuade our originalist constitutionalist listeners, what, what, why do you believe that the Constitution itself pro prohibits uh, the good cause restrictions on the firing of inferior officers, and then uh, maybe tell us what you think the current originalist conservative justices on the court would say on this question, putting on the table uh, cases we haven't discussed, including the central decision about executive power written by that great uh, judicial president and presidential chief justice, William Howard Taft, the Myers case. I think Myers is, a, is actually great, a great way into this topic because it's it's of course not not just me who thinks that the Constitution points us in a direction over uh, of significant presidential authority over the executive branch. It was the the 1926 decision in in Myers um, by Chief Justice Taft that that um, was a notable step in in entrenching that in Supreme Court case law. And and the essential holding of of Myers 
was that was of great presidential power to remove executive branch uh, officials. Myers was a, I believe, postmaster first class who'd been removed by by uh, Woodrow Wilson, and the, a law that had been in place um, suggested that removal required. I don't think it was good cause. I actually think it was Senate advice and, and consent. And um, the court found the statute um, unconstitutional. Uh, it, it couldn't, it even uh, though advice and consent may be a way in for executive branch uh, officials, it was deemed not to be uh, a way out. Uh, the way out instead was left in the hands of the president in parts so that the president could keep those um, working for the president responsive uh, to, to him. And what, what Myers uh, does, in addition to exploring kind of the logic of that, is to, to suggest that, um, uh, that the, the language that, that you helpfully began us with, uh, Section 2 of, uh, uh, of Article 2, um, points to that sort of control over the executive branch. That the Congress um, does sit there to provide advice and consent, or I should say the Senate to provide advice and consent for principal officers, but the Congress may go ahead and vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, or in other cases in the courts of law or the heads of departments. And so that that's what Myers looked at. Now, as with so many Supreme Court cases, the world got more complicated as, as time went by. And I believe you pointed us earlier, Jeff, to the decision in 1937, Humphrey's executor, um, which seemed uh, to at least um, express some limits on, on Meyer's scope. Uh, the, there, and, and how Humphreys has been interpreted over time, the idea that there are these multi-member regulatory agencies, commissions they often have the names of, um, that we, to which we assign certain technocratic uh, roles, significant, important in our system, but that they are not pure executive branch. They're not uh, carrying out a core executive function like, uh, at least as it's become, uh, and I'm nodding there to, to Eric's history, prosecuting or choosing not to prosecute, which is sometimes the, the even more important decision. Instead, these multi-member uh, agencies, they do regulatory things. We want them to have a certain continuity. We want to insulate them a little. And they are not pure executive branch functions they're carrying out. So Humphrey's executor says, for those you can install some sort of protection from removal. But Myers is still good law. And Myers ultimately talks about for the executive branch, for those carrying out executive um, uh, functions, and presumably Myers thought that being a first-class postmaster uh, fell within it. I'm, I'm more confident that being a, a prosecutor falls within it, um, uh, that those are things, those are roles where the people holding them must ultimately be responsive to the president. And you can just imagine what it would be like to have um, a, uh, a, a prosecutor not being responsive to the president, instead using that role to harass or otherwise bother the president. I say you can imagine that because, of course, uh, we saw it. We saw it with, with Kenneth Starr. We saw the, the road that that took us down as a country. And that learned experience is one that Congress found sufficiently unpalatable, in part uh, after strong testimony as the, as the independent counsel statute was about to elapse from Attorney General Janet Reno, that they thought that statute needed to, to, to go by the wayside. So ultimately, um, the idea that we've, we've tried insulating prosecutors um, from the president, uh, to whom at least I ultimately think they report uh, and need to be responsive, it has not turned, uh, turned out well. 
Um, and so as important as it is to see Mueller's work continue in, in the particular moment in history in which we find ourselves, and as valid as I think the current regulation is that insulates him from firing uh, except for good cause, because a regulation is ultimately something that a president could overturn if the president so chose. It's an act purely of the executive branch. I do think a statute that attempts to impose uh, a good cause restriction on on the firing of, of someone uh, carrying out such critical executive function, um, that that falls afoul of, of Myers and the case law since. Thank you so much for that and for your parsing of the Myers case by Chief Justice Taft and the Humphreys executor case by Justice Brandeis. I feel like We the People is like that old Groucho Marx show, You Bet Your Life, where he would say, you said the magic void. And here it was the Taft <laughs> opinion that became central. There's always some central Taft opinion that we haven't uh, understood so far. So, Eric, what about Myers? And is it does it provide a constitutional basis for the argument that any officer exercising core executive functions like prosecutors uh, must be fireable by the president? And is the current Supreme Court likely to be persuaded that Myers governs and therefore to strike down the uh, Special Counsel Protection Act? Well, Josh gave you an excellent answer to your question about about the independent counsel statute and the special counsel statute, but it wasn't actually Justice Scalia's answer, right? Justice Scalia's answer was based on his originalist ideas. Uh, Josh's answer is based on the evolution of the case law, which is how you know lawyers normally think, and it's a good way of trying to think about this issue. Look, here's the lesson from Myers and Humphrey's executor. The, the, the Supreme Court recognizes that the president has to have primary control over the executive branch. Um, there are constitutional reasons for that, which Josh has told us. There are democratic reasons for that. There are all kinds of good reasons for that. Okay. Humphrey's executor tells us that, um, like all principles, that principle can't be taken to the extreme. There are all kinds of reasons why the president's control over the executive branch should be limited. Josh mentioned earlier on um, the, uh, the uh, merit protections for you know, low-level government employees, that's a restriction on the president's power. It was absolutely essential because of the enormous corruption in the federal government in the 19th century. You could have made the same argument uh, then as people are, that Josh is making now, that if you uh, restrict the president's power over low-level employees, you're interfering with executive power. It also means that when the low-level employees do bad things, the public won't be able to complain to the president and ask the president to remove them. It's a pragmatic trade-off that led to this idea that low-level employees should be protected by, uh, by the, the merit rules. Same, exactly the same argument can be made about inferior officers, or even principal officers, as the Humphreys executor opinion shows. So the Humphreys executor opinion shows that um, even when you um, create very powerful bodies, uh, you know, the, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Trade Commission. I mean, there are all kinds of, there are dozens and dozens of these powerful bodies that, that make rules and enforce them over very broad areas of public policy. And the president has limited control over these, uh, these institutions. The Fed is another example. Federal Reserve Board, uh, which regulates the money supply. Why has the Supreme Court recognized that there should be constraints on the president's power? Because it turns out in a very complex modern state, 
you can't have you know a king-like figure who um, controls everything that happens in the executive branch, all types of enforcement. It just doesn't work. It's not practical. It leads to risks of abuse that are not tolerable, and that we saw not only in um, in the uh, uh, Nixon administration, but in other presidencies, uh, the Harding administration, the Truman administration. In all of these cases, what happened in the 20th century, which the founders didn't have to contend with, is that the national government was given just a tremendous amount of power that it hadn't had, and that, and that, and as long as you use the 18th century idea, at least according to Scalia, that the president would have uh, sort of maximal influence over the executive branch, you could lead to all, all kinds of, of problems. So when you engage in that kind of thinking, you realize that what the Supreme Court has done in case after case, in Myers and Humphrey's executor, in Morrison versus Old Olson, in the Edmund case, uh, which we were talking about earlier, is it's engaging in a kind of balancing, which Scalia claimed to hate, by the way, but that's what it does and what it's been doing for, um, for, for a very long time. So the argument against the special counsel bill cannot be uh, well, the special counsel has prosecutorial authority, and therefore, as a matter of logic, the president has to be able to remove him. The argument has to be about what the risks are from uh, giving um, uh, some independence to this particular official. Not a whole lot of independence, by the way, just some independence. And the only way to answer that question is to go back and look at all of these scandals, all these all, all these times in which corruption in the executive branch was not addressed because the, either the president himself was involved or he wanted to protect his friends, cronies, and subordinates. Uh, I, I wish I could remember the name and the author, but a book was written that looks at the whole history of special counsel and independent counsel investigations. And while we all think of the single, you know, star investigation of Bill Clinton, there have been dozens and dozens of those investigations, almost all of which uh, uh, were reasonable. The, 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 sometimes this, the uh, counsel would drop the case because there wasn't evidence. Sometimes he would pursue it and secure convictions. Um, in any event, you know, if you want to attack the special counsel bill, it seems to me that the attack has to be based on a reading of our of our history and an evaluation of those various cases, not not based on the you know Article Two of the Constitution, not based on Myers or Humphrey's executor, which were addressing uh, different issues, not even based on the independent counsel opinion, Morrison versus Olson, which was also an opinion decided at a different time in response uh, to different events. Uh, we just have to decide here how much. Um, power we want, uh, how much we trust the president to uh, use his massive powers without giving into the temptation uh, of abuse. Thank you so much for that. Josh, one last response to Eric, and then we'll have closing arguments. He's argued that whether or not you can invoke Myers for your argument, it's not an originalist argument. It really is more of a pragmatic one. And on the pragmatics, he disagrees with you. So uh, what's your response to that? Do you want to try to persuade our originalist listeners that uh, they should uh, believe that the special counsel act is unconstitutional? And w how do you imagine that the originalist members of the Supreme Court will deal with this dilemma in light of Eric's arguments that the history is against you? Eric's Eric's encapsulation of the arguments on the other side are, are, are beautiful. And so let me let me let me 
maybe focus on what I think would be the, the key question Supreme Court justices right now might ask of advocates before them, either defending or challenging uh, the, the bill that's, that's, that's being debated, if it were indeed to pass. I would think they'd want to know what is good cause. Because conceivably, at least, some of the more pragmatic among them might, might not read Myers exactly as I do, might not think that Edmund limits Morrison to its, its facts as I do. Some of them, at least, might say, well, depending on how good cause is interpreted, it might give us room to salvage or not this bill. And it seems to me at the heart of what they want to know is, well, would disobeying a president, would doing things with significant authority, because we've established that inferior officers still exercise significant policy sway, would disobeying the president, somehow implementing some policies, ordering others to implement policies, acting in a way that the president has said, that's not what my presidency is about. I don't want that happening. Would that be good cause? Now, if the answer that came back from, from the, the defenders of, of the law were that would be, that might mollify some of the justices. I'm not sure it would mollify five, given how many I think have, have, have paid homage to Justice Scalia's dissent, including those generally seen as on the left, like, like Justice Kagan, as I mentioned earlier. But that might mollify at least some of them. But presumably the answer is that good cause can't be simply acting in ways the president doesn't like. Because those who are proponents of this bill know how the president feels about the current special counsel and his work. We all know it. Uh, it's probably to our chagrin by this series of, of tweets we tend to, to wake up to uh, about it. Uh, and so presumably what's, what's being sought is something more, protection against more than just doing things the president doesn't like. And if that's the answer, even the pragmatic justices get that they're, that the the special counsel would be shielded even from essentially pursuing policies at odds with the person we call the chief executive, I think, for a, for a reason. I think the, the law would really face a, a, an uphill battle uh, at, at the current court. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this remarkably illuminating, rigorous, and educational debate. And the first one is to you, Eric Tell our listeners concisely why you believe that the Special Counsel Protection Act is consistent with the Constitution. Well, the Constitution sets up the president as the head of the executive branch, but it doesn't give him infinite authority over the executive branch. And we know from vast experience in this country going back two centuries that the president can abuse that authority. Uh, the special counsel statute is a very limited, sensible way to limit uh, the president's power to abuse his authority. Of course, there are other ways as well, like um, impeachment. We also know from history that impeachment uh, is extremely difficult and is almost impossible if um, the president's power, the president's party, um, you know, has has any influence in, in or more than trivial influence in, in the two houses of Congress. But, but let me also talk a little bit about um, Josh's point, which I think is a very good one. How do you define good cause? I actually think this is not, this is not a difficult question. So good cause to listeners might sound vague, um, you know, could mean all kinds of things, but the term is used all the time in the law. It's used in employment contracts, it's used in government. And so there's a long 
is a long history of adjudication of the meaning of these terms. Now, I think in the case of the presidency, the Supreme Court would interpret this term in a narrow and sensible way, and then most defenders of the special counsel statute would agree with that definition. The president can use his authority over enforcement to advance ordinary policy goals. So, for example, the president could say, I want my prosecutors to focus more on drug crimes and less on immigration crimes, or more on immigration crimes and less on white collar fraud, and so on and so forth. Presidents have been doing that for decades or centuries, and, um, and everybody understands that that's the legitimate part of their role. The, at the other extreme, when the president blocks prosecution of himself, where the claim is, the, the, the allegation that's being investigated is that he abused his powers, perhaps for pecuniary reasons, for example, um, then obviously removing the, uh, the special counsel would not be for good cause. So the, the effect would be that, the, that any president who was thinking about removing a special counsel know that at minimum, uh, a court would have to hear the argument. And I think that would create just enough political and legal uh, cost for him that um, a president uh, would be less likely to remove a special counsel. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Josh, the last word is to you. Uh, please tell we the People listeners, why you believe that the Special Counsel Independence and Integrity Act, to use its full name, violates the Constitution? Let me start with the areas of agreement uh, between Eric and me, because they are, are, are so wide. Uh, I think we both agree that the, the work of the current Special Counsel is, is critical. Uh, I think we agree that the Special Counsel is an inferior officer under the Constitution and the the tests that have been established for that by the Supreme Court. And where we begin to depart is the level of control over his own executive branch that we think a, a president should have or is entitled to have under, under Article II of the Constitution. Um, to me, uh, whatever the president, thinking about constitutional design in the abstract, it's important that, that, um, that those who are part of the executive branch be responsive to the president, not because uh, we want to fetishize the presidency, but because that's a way of being responsive to voters. Uh, and because of that, I think we have history in the form of uh, going all the way back to our first president, George Washington, who thought it was so important, as you indicated, Jeff, to establish that control over his executive branch, that he had Congress pass a statute making clear he could fire his, his own attorney general, who reached below the attorney general to issue directions to line prosecutors. And ultimately, I think we see the Supreme Court getting to that understanding um, in the Edmund decision and in letting Justice Scalia write what had been some of the, his Morrison dissent into his description of inferior officers and their role in the executive branch uh, in his majority opinion in Edmund. I think there are um, remedies that the Constitution offers um, for, for presidents who make um, very, very bad choices, choices in the, in the, um, in the constitutional sense that are bad. Um, impeachment is one of those. Uh, and ultimately, the ballot box is, is one of those. Um, but the very narrow sliver uh, where I think we disagree is, is protecting those who, who exercise the sort of authority that make them officers, albeit inferior, uh, with good cause uh, removal protection, that that is something the Constitution doesn't permit by erecting that sort of barrier between 
someone who works for the president and the president. Thank you so much, Eric Posner and Joshua Geltzer, for an illuminating discussion in the highest tradition of We the People's Aim, which is to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution. Dear We the People listeners, I feel so fortunate to be able to join with you in listening to the best arguments on both sides of crucial constitutional issues, to disaggregate them so that we can make up our own minds. I must close with the inspiring quotation from Isaiah, which was one of Justice Brandeis's favorite. Come now, let us reason together. And that is what Joshua and Eric have allowed us to do. And for that reason, Joshua Geltzer and Eric Posner, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott, with research and booking by Lana Ulrich, Jackie McDermott, Ben Roebuck, and Madison Poulter. Please check out our bonus episode of We the People, Senator Chris Coons in conversation with me about the constitutionality of the Special Counsel Protection Act. Uh, Senator Coons was here at the Constitution Center recently. He discussed the very topic of today's podcast. It's a great conversation, so please make sure to check it out. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And always remember, dear We the People listeners, if you were inspired by that exhortation from Isaiah to come let us reason together, know how crucial the Constitution Center is as a platform for reasoned education and debate, and know how important it is for each of you every day and every in every way to be educating yourself with constitutional reason. And the only way you can do that is to support the Constitution Center so we can keep doing our great work. So please visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.